What Must We Do? Written by Don Brumley Introduction Man has a basic need for the strength and knowledge of his Creator. This need cannot be explained nor can it be satisfactorily communicated from one individual to another except as a profession of faith and belief in the existence of an Almighty God. This belief, although vague and even mysterious in origin, motivates man to consider his surroundings, the magnificence of the universe, the complexities of living with his fellow man, and life and death as applied to himself. These considerations, once they are established in an individual's mind, will lead to basic decision of acceptance or denial of God's existence. To accept, without tangible proof, the existence of an eternal and almighty God is to follow longings rooted deep within the innermost parts and is not unlike the extraordinary flight of migratory birds in due season. This acceptance must be followed by a second and just as important decision. Can an individual know what God would have done for him, or is God vague and remote in his relationship with man? This decision is not an easy one in the prevailing circumstances of our day. In our world can be found so many different religious beliefs that the sincerely searching mind is quickly lost in a maze of religionous confusion. The normal mind rebels at this obvious perversion of God's ways. For the most rudimentary knowledge of the natural laws governing our universe reveals precision and order to be the rule and not the exception. It is not logical to expect God to be so precise in one realm of His creation and so slipshod in another. The very orderliness of God's natural world cries out that he is not a God of confusion, but of order. The searching mind will note, however, within the confusion of the world's religions, a name and a miracle repeatedly attracting his attention. The name is Jesus, and the miracle was his resurrection from the dead. Why does this name and event stand out among the many founders of religious movements? Because he is the only one to return from the realm of the dead as proof of his divine mission. Our minds are quickly stimulated by this event and a desire to have been in the group visited by the resurrected Jesus is a natural reaction. To sit with Jesus and his followers, especially the apostles Peter and Paul, and hear from their own lips the true plan of God, then one could really know without doubt what must be done to be saved. Not only could we hear this plan, but these two apostles could tell us from first-hand experiences what it means to live it with an absolute surety and conviction unto death. Although a personal discussion as we have desired is not possible, a detailed searching of the Bible should produce the next best possibility to really knowing what pleases God. That is the purpose of this book, a personal interview through Scripture with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle Paul to determine 
what each had to say concerning God's requirement for man's salvation. Part 1. Salvation According to the Lord Jesus Christ The Lord Jesus Christ entered the physical world for the express purpose of freeing man from his state of eternal condemnation. Scripturally, this concept is stated in Matthew 18.11, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. In his acquired state of degradation, man was bound by a degenerative nature which produced such ungodlike characteristics as greed, hate, selfishness, and hypocrisy. Additionally, man was, for the most part, subject to the natural elements around him as well as physical weaknesses which resulted in sicknesses, diseases, birth defects, and at the end of his natural life, an eternal death. The restrictions imposed on man were the righteous judgments of God on his disobedient creation. The original act of disobedience was so hideous in the mind of God that direct communion with man was severed, never to be reinstated unless sin could be made void through total removal. Voiding or removing sin was outside the power of man. Man could, and did, bring sin into the world, but he was powerless to remove it or its effects. In his sinful condition, man was helplessly and hopelessly banished forever from the presence of his Creator, unless God would provide a way whereby sin could be covered as though it had never existed. Man's only hope for redemption from an eternal death was in the compassionate and forgiving nature of God whom he had sinned against. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The great and compassionate love of God for man would be made manifest in a plan of salvation through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The shedding of his blood would make void the stains of sin and man could once again enjoy his rightful and intended place in the presence of his God and Creator. The Lord's public life was spent preparing His followers to take advantage of the new life being made available by His death. Although Jesus spoke and taught continually concerning the new life, or church age to come, He did not establish the church in His lifetime, but placed the responsibility in the hands of His closest disciples, the twelve apostles, to be accomplished after His death. The Lord taught his followers the essentials necessary to establish a new life in the coming church age. His teachings concerning the requirements for admission into the church is the objective of this section. Although many statements can be found in the Bible, two of his most direct and emphatic are Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved and John 3 and 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
These verses of Scripture are quotes of the Lord Jesus and are detailed and specific enough to follow a fairly simple and easy analysis of the Lord's requirements to be saved. Although in John 3.3 the exact word saved is not used, there is no difficulty recognizing that if a person is not saved, he most certainly will not see the kingdom of God. In other words, to be saved and to see the kingdom of God means exactly the same thing. Having arrived at this conclusion, a more simple and brief writing of these verses are possible. Mark 16 and 16. Believe and be baptized equals salvation. John 3 and 3. Be born again equals salvation. The first and most obvious difference between these two statements is the requirement for believing in one and no mention made in the other. The lack of a requirement for the belief in John 3.3 can best be explained by looking at the two preceding verses. John 3 and 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus had already voiced his acceptance and belief in the divine mission of Jesus, so there was no need for Jesus to tell him to believe. Keeping this thought in mind, a rewriting of these two verses in a more meaningful way is possible. Mark 16 and 16, believe and be baptized equals salvation. John 3, 1 through 3, believe and be born again equals salvation. These verses now look very similar and in fact are identical except one requires baptism and the other a new birth. Since all other conditions are identically the same in both verses, then to be born again must mean to be baptized. Nicodemus, at the time of his conversation with Jesus, did not have the belief of this knowledge, because he immediately asked Jesus what he meant by a statement that ye must be born again. John 3 and 4 Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? and be born? In reply, Jesus not only answered the question, but expanded on his original statement of a need to be born again. John 3 and 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, is spirit. Jesus reiterates his previous statement that a new birth is required and goes on to explain that his new birth consists of two parts, a natural part, water, and a spiritual part. In other words, the rebirth process must consist of a water birth and a spirit birth. 
A substitution of the word baptism for birth, since they are the same, and summarizing the Lord's teaching in these two verses of Scripture, in a step-by-step fashion, the following procedure appears. Believe that Jesus came from God, John 3 and 2. Be baptized, or born of the water, John 3 and 5. And be baptized, or born of the Spirit, John 3 and 5. This then, in condensed and summary form, presents the essential elements for salvation as taught by the Lord Jesus. Not only has the Lord presented His requirements for salvation, but has, by the very presentation, imposed a penalty for failure to comply as being the denial of the privilege of seeing or entering the kingdom of God. The first two steps are not too difficult to imagine or understand since they are of the visible, natural realm. However, the reference to a spiritual baptism has somewhat the same effect today as in the day of Nicodemus. Is it possible to be baptized by an invisible spirit? The natural mind does not readily accept or understand these things concerning a spiritual nature. However, the words of John the Baptist take on greater importance as the truth of a spiritual baptism is questioned. Matthew 3.11 I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This was John's preaching to all those that followed his teachings and contained a definite and emphatic promise of a spiritual baptism to follow his water baptism and was to be administered by the Lord himself. What did Jesus teach as being essential to an individual's salvation? The following step-by-step summary is the answer. 1. Believe that Jesus came from God. John 3, 2. 2. Be baptized or born of water. John 3, 5. And 3. Be baptized or born of the Spirit. John 3 and 5. Part 2. Salvation according to the Apostle Peter. Matthew 16, 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These scriptures from Matthew's gospel serve to introduce the Apostle Peter, as well as defining the part that Peter will play in the church to be built upon the rock, Christ Jesus. Peter was given keys to the kingdom of heaven, and their possession propel Peter into an important and central position in the church to come. The very existence of keys suggests the existence of a gate or door to the kingdom of heaven. This conclusion is spiritually confirmed in John 10. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Now the master plan of God to save his disobedient creation begins to take form a little more clearly. First, salvation will be possible through entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, this entrance must be through the door, Jesus Christ. As the mind grasps the meaning of these scriptures, the keys that have been entrusted to the Apostle Peter take on a greater significance. These keys must be used to unlock the door to the kingdom of heaven for the completion of God's plan of salvation. The thought that the total plan of God is dependent upon the faithfulness of one man for its completion is startling to the mind. Such a tremendous responsibility for one single solitary human being. What are these very important keys that have been entrusted to the Apostle Peter? Their necessary usage at the opening of the church age points to the book of Acts of the Apostles to find the answer to this question. The book of Acts presents the formation of the first churches and their requirements for salvation. Chapter 1 of Acts opens with the last words and instructions of the resurrected Jesus prior to his ascension. Of particular interest and importance is the fourth and fifth verse. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Jesus once again makes reference to a spiritual experience, baptism, as being an integral part of his teachings. Not only does he confirm the reality of a forthcoming spiritual baptism, but seems to indicate that this will be mandatory requirement for he commanded his followers to not leave Jerusalem until they had received this promise, spiritual baptism. Verse 8 contains additional information about the baptism and states that an accompanying power to witness will follow. Acts 1 and 8 But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Although they had spent approximately three years with Jesus, and had been privileged to receive his personal instructions concerning his gospel and those things to come, he made it quite clear that they were not ready to preach his gospel. They must wait until power was received from heaven before witnessing of him. These were his last words, 
and with their utterance the Lord Jesus ascended into the clouds. The apostles and other followers, approximately 120 in total, returned to Jerusalem as Jesus commanded, and remained in prayer and supplication while waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Their faithfulness and obedience was rewarded by the descent of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. This event is recorded in the opening verses of chapter 2 of Acts. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The first spiritual baptism began like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and was accompanied by the appearance of fiery tongues, and culminated in all those present being filled with the Holy Ghost, and then speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A complete understanding of what has happened is not altogether clear at the first reading of these verses of Scripture. There is, however, an intuitive and unexplainable sensing that something momentous has occurred in the history of man. What a sight this must have been to behold! Men and women reacting to the dynamic baptism of the Holy Spirit. The privilege of viewing this event firsthand although to be desired, is obviously out of the question some 2,000 years later. It is possible, however, to study the reactions of the gathering crowd and form an imaginary picture of this event. The crowd's reactions can be found in verses 5-13 through 13 of this chapter. Some who came were amazed in verses 7 and 12. Some marveled in verse 7. Others doubted the reality of what they saw and wondered what was going on, verse 12. And still others began to ridicule and accuse them of being drunk, verse 13. These reactions make it abundantly clear that the entrance of the Holy Ghost within an individual produces curious effects, somewhat like those of a drunken person. This thought suggests actions of loudness, noiseness, staggering, and even falling. The Apostle Peter, at this suggestion of drunkenness, stood in the midst and explained what they beheld. Peter did not deny the drunken state of those who had just been filled with the Holy Ghost, but pointed out that their drunkenness was not caused by wine, as they thought. What they were observing had been predicted by the prophet Joel. Acts 2.17 And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Peter's comments in the remaining verses of the chapter not only confirm the descent of the Holy Ghost, 
but point out that this event should have been expected by anyone familiar with the scriptures of the prophets of Israel. Peter's attitude after receiving the Holy Ghost has become bold and sure, two characteristics he previously had lacked, for he had denied ever knowing Jesus on the evening before his crucifixion. Part of Peter's boldness was prompted, no doubt, by remembering the words of Jesus as recorded by Mark. Mark 16, 17 And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Some of the people in the crowd were impressed and moved by the power and demonstrations of the Spirit because at the conclusion of Peter's explanation, they asked him, What must we do? Or, How can we be filled with a Holy Ghost like these that we now see and hear? Peter's answer to this question is of importance, for he has the keys to how to be saved and must now put them to use. Acts 2.38 Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This statement surely explains how to receive the Holy Ghost, but the expected revealing of the way to be saved has not materialized unless there is a connection between receiving the Holy Ghost and being saved. This dilemma is solved by referring to the 14th chapter of Romans. Romans 14:17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. No wonder Peter gave instructions on how to receive the Holy Ghost at this time, for these scriptures make it clear that existence in the kingdom of God is nothing more or less than existence in the Holy Ghost. This then explains why Jesus placed such importance on waiting until the Holy Ghost was given on the day of Pentecost. In other words, they were not qualified to tell others about the kingdom of God until they had gained admittance themselves. Not only would they have not had power, but how could they describe the entrance of God's Spirit into the human body if they had not actually experienced it themselves? These facts make it clear that Peter has indeed used those keys in all heaven, through the Holy Ghost, had come down to live in the hearts of man. What were those keys? See Acts 2.38. 1. Repentance. 2. Water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And 3. Receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Perhaps a little research will prove beneficial to understanding what is meant by step number 3. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is referred to by Jesus in Acts 1, 4-5 as the promise of the Father and also as the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In Acts 2.4, the promise is described as being filled with the Holy Ghost. Since all three statements refer to the same event, they must mean the same thing. In other words, to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and to be filled with the Holy Ghost are identical statements. 
and both mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the entrance into the spiritual kingdom of God by virtue of the fact that the kingdom itself has been received within. The question, who can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, seemed to have been anticipated by Peter, for he elaborates on this subject without prompting in the next verse. Acts 2.39 For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter makes it clear that the only restriction to be placed on who can receive the Holy Ghost will be placed by the Lord Himself. All who are called by God may receive the Holy Ghost, and thereby gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Bringing to mind the fact that Peter is at this time speaking to the Jews might raise the question of whether or not the Holy Ghost will be made available to others, namely the Gentiles or non-Jews. The answer to this question can be found in the 10th chapter of Acts. This chapter records the bringing together of the Apostle Peter and an Italian by the name of Cornelius, so that Peter can provide instructions of how to be saved. As Peter begins to tell of the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. The Holy Ghost descended upon all those who heard it. Acts 10.44 While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. The Apostle Peter later referred to this event as being God's granting of salvation to the Gentile people as well as the Jews. See Acts 11, 1 through 18. And clearly demonstrates that Gentiles, or non-Jews, are included in Peter's statement in Acts 2.39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Salvation has once again been poured out upon deserving people, and the same person, Peter, who opened the door for the Jews, now does so for the Gentiles. Peter has once again used those keys, and they are the same as the original. 1. Repentance, Acts 11.18 2. Water baptism in the name of the Lord, Acts 10, 47-48, and 3. Holy Ghost baptism, evidence by speaking with tongues, Acts 10, 44-46, and 11, 15-17. It's interesting to note how the Apostle Peter and his companions were able to tell that the Holy Ghost had been given. Verses 46 and 47 state that they knew 
when they heard them speak with tongues. Receiving the Holy Ghost was once again accompanied by speaking with tongues just like the day of Pentecost and provided evidence that the Holy Ghost had been received. The keys to the kingdom of God or how to be saved. 1. Repentance. 2. Water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3. Holy Ghost baptism, evidence by speaking with other tongues. Part 3. Salvation according to the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 and 9. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. These words, written by the Apostle Paul, serve as an introduction to this great man of God. In them can be found a reference to the two distinct phases of Paul's life. There is reference to his early life spent in strict observance of the law and prophets of Israel. During this period, Paul vigorously opposed the Christian doctrine and persecuted the Christian followers. His conversion to the Christian faith is implied by referring to himself as an apostle. This conversion stands as a dramatic display of God's great love and mercy for an errant heart who, although in error, is sincere in purpose and convictions. Paul's spectacular meeting with Jesus as he journeyed to the city of Damascus in Acts 9, 3-6 resulted in his joining the Christians of that city instead of persecuting them as he had originally planned. During his stay in Damascus, Paul received water baptism, Acts 22.16, and prayer that he might be filled with the Holy Ghost, Acts 9.17. The infilling of the Holy Ghost is not described in Scripture, but that he eventually was is evident from Acts 13 and 9. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. Following his conversion, Paul traveled to Arabia, where he remained for an appreciable length of time, probably three years, before traveling to Jerusalem and conferring with the founders of the Christian church. He later presents this fact as evidence that the gospel he preached was not learned from fellow Christians but came by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.11 For I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul continues along this same line of thought, for in the 16th verse, he refers to this time of learning and receiving of instructions as not being contact with the flesh and blood, but clearly implies that it was a time of spiritual contact. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul comes right out and boldly states that Jesus Christ, following his resurrection, appeared to him just as he had the other apostles. See 1 Corinthians 15 and 9. In addition to these statements, professing divine instruction and appearances, Paul alludes to the actually being caught up 
to heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 and 2 I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. An appreciation for these divine interventions and spiritual episodes in Paul's early life as a Christian makes it a little easier to understand his persistent and determined efforts to preach the gospel of salvation to all that would listen. Paul had many things to say about how to be saved, and these sayings are preserved in the many letters that he wrote to the churches that he founded. His instructions concerning the steps to be taken for salvation are best presented, however, in the 19th chapter of Acts. Acts 19 and 1 And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. In these scriptures, Paul is presented as an evangelist, bringing specific instructions to believers about what they required to do to completely conform to the gospel as Paul preached it. First of all, it's worth noting that Paul placed emphasis on receiving the Holy Ghost after becoming a believer. Secondly, after he told them that they had not received the Holy Ghost, he was immediately concerned about their water baptism. Upon learning of the Ephesians' incomplete knowledge of the requirements for salvation, they were aware only of the need for repentance and water baptism, Paul made corrections where needed and these corrections serve to reveal his understanding of how to be saved. Number one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4. Two, water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 5. And three, receive the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking with tongues, in verse 6. This then concludes the search for the plan of salvation taught by the Apostle Paul, and as a footnote to his teaching, it seems fitting to include his comment to the church of Galatia concerning the gospel that he preached. Galatians 1 and 8 But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, 
If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Did the Apostle Paul believe that the steps to be saved could be altered with the elapse of time and the ascension to the positions of authority of other evangelists and preachers? Definitely not, for Paul is, by this writing, pronouncing a curse on any who preach a different plan. Paul did not stop with just man in general, but specifically included himself, should he change his mind, and even included an angel from heaven. These are strong words indeed, and they convey Paul's absolute faith and trust in the pure and unchanging gospel. What did Paul practice as steps required for salvation? 1. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2. Water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. And 3. Receive the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with tongues. Part 4. Summary The previous sections have presented scriptural discussions with the Lord Jesus and His Apostles Peter and Paul. The information gathered in these sections will serve as the basis for a summary. The summary is presented in an effort to arrive at one common, universal formula for attaining salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ taught 1. Believe that Jesus came from God. 2. Be baptized or born again of water. And 3. Be baptized or born again of the Spirit. The Apostle Peter taught repentance. Number 2. Water baptism administered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number 3. Holy Ghost baptism evidenced by speaking with other tongues. The Apostle Paul taught, 1. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2. Water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. And 3. Receive the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues. Step 1 to Salvation Comparing Step 1 in each instant indicates that the Apostle Peter differs from that of Jesus and Paul in that he required repentance whereas they stipulated belief in the divine mission of Jesus to be the first requirement. This apparent difference quickly disappears with a realization that to be truly convinced of the divine nature of Jesus and His unconditional sacrifice for all sin will bring a person to repentance. In other words, to really and truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will naturally result in repentance or a turning away from a life of sin. When it is realized that repentance is the end result of true belief in Jesus Christ, it is possible to state the first requirement for salvation in final form. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance from sins. Step 2 to Salvation Step number two in the plan of salvation concerns water baptism, sometimes referred to by Jesus as the water birth, and perhaps the first item to be settled when considering this step is how is baptism to be accomplished. The answer is quickly arrived by referring to the Apostle Paul's letter 
to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes to these people that they are to be buried with Jesus in baptism. The word bury carries with it the idea or conception of being totally enclosed or covered with the substance being used to accomplish burial. In presenting this concept in association with water baptism, Paul is obviously requiring that immersion be used. The second difference in these three statements is the use of the Lord's name, Jesus, by Peter and Paul, and the absence of any name at all in the Lord's. That the Lord Jesus did consider the use of the name important is shown in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. This subject seems to be important, somewhat controversial, and worth looking into in more detail. An analysis of the scripture reveals, first of all, that the Lord himself is speaking, and secondly, that he is presenting his formula for administering water baptism that must be followed. What did Jesus command to be done? People to be baptized must be baptized in the Father's name, the Son's name, and the Holy Ghost's name. Substitutes for the actual name cannot be used. Therefore, the name in each instance must be determined. The Son's name is Jesus, the only begotten of the living God, and many scriptures are available to establish this fact. In this portion of the Lord's commandment, the name Jesus is clearly commanded to be used. To determine the name of the Father is not really difficult because Jesus said in John 5.43 that his Father's name is the same as his name. I come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. In John 17.6, Jesus presents additional evidence that his name is the same as the Father's. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. The only name that the Lord manifested to the world was the name Jesus, and the name, according to the Lord, must be used when water baptism is administered. The name of the Holy Ghost is presented in John 14.26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. The speaker in this scripture is Jesus, and he says that the Holy Ghost will come in the name of Jesus, just as the Son bore the name of the Father who sent him, so would the Holy Ghost bear the name of the sender, Jesus. John fifteen twenty six, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth. John 16 and 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The analysis confirms the fact of scriptural consistency for the Lord commanded the use of the Father's name, 
and the Son's name and the Holy Ghost's name, which has been demonstrated to the, be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the apostles understood and obeyed this commandment in this manner is readily established from the practices when administering water baptism in the early church. Acts 2.38 Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 8.16 For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 10 and 48 And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Acts 22.16 And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 19 and 5 And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 10.43 To him give all prophets witness, that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. These scriptures not only demonstrate that water baptism administered in the name of Jesus is the only biblical acceptable formula, but bring light the fact that salvation is possible only through the name of Jesus. When this fact is considered, along with the many other scriptures stating that salvation is possible only through the shed of blood of Jesus, it becomes obvious that both the blood and the name of our Lord are necessary for salvation. Since both are required for salvation, and since the name is applied specifically or individually in water baptism, then the blood of Jesus must have been shed for all sins in a generalized sense. This one glorious sacrifice of our Lord met and defeated the stigma of sin in an all-encompassing sense for the entirety of mankind and made it possible for the application of the name of Jesus in a specific or individual sense in water baptism. In other words, without the blood of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ cannot bring salvation. On the other hand, the saving power of the blood is nullified without the application of the name. An individual accepts and applies the blood of Jesus through the act of repentance, and accepts and applies the name of Jesus through the act of water baptism. Both are absolute musts. This concept, although startling at first, becomes easier to understand and loses its strangeness when divine healing is considered. Isaiah 53 and 5 and 1 Peter 2.24 are scriptures stating that the sacrifice of the Lord's body paid the price for all healing, and yet in Acts 3, 6-16, and James 5, 14, healing comes through the name of Jesus. Here is another example whereby a sacrifice, the Lord's body, paid the price in a general sense, 
but must be followed by the use of the Lord's name to accomplish results in a specific instance. Without the sacrificing of the body of Jesus, the name cannot bring healing. And without the name of Jesus, the sacrifices of his body is rendered powerless to work an act of divine healing. In the final analysis, it is clearly evident that the Lord Jesus Christ and his two apostles, Peter and Paul, all three agree that salvation is possible only through the name of Jesus, and since water baptism is a step in the plan of salvation, it follows that this baptism must be administered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The final stating of step number two is now possible. Water baptism by immersion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Step three to salvation. The third step in the plan of salvation is the phenomenal baptism of the Holy Ghost, otherwise referred to as the spiritual birth into the kingdom of God. This baptism is administered by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1 and 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locust and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Since the scriptures undeniably teach the necessity for spiritual birth or baptism as being essential for salvation, the obvious question is how can an individual know that the baptism has been performed? All instances recorded in the New Testament were accompanied by supernatural signs, and the only sign that was common to all these instances was the speaking in tongues by those being baptized. Acts 2.4 And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 10 and 46 For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. The question to be answered is, will all speak with other tongues when the Holy Ghost is received? The answer is contained in the 8th verse in the 3rd chapter of John. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. The importance of the Lord's words in these scriptures is best understood by noticing the last part, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Jesus seems to have anticipated the future difficulty in understanding the spiritual rebirth process and takes a familiar example from the natural world to illustrate how to recognize when the new birth has been accomplished. The Spirit, like the wind, cannot be seen. The observer cannot tell where it blows, 
where it blows from or where it blows to, but can recognize its presence by the sound it makes as it blows against the surrounding objects. Jesus, by this illustration, is saying that spirit acts in a similar manner. Although the spirit cannot be seen as it moves upon an individual, the effects of the movement can be recognized by the sound made as the spirit moves in the act of rebirth. The only sound that the Bible speaks of that was common to all instances of the moving of God's spirit on the early church was the speaking with other tongues as the spirit gave the utterance. Comparing these instances with the truth in the Lord's teaching about the wind presents the fact that it is impossible to receive the Holy Ghost without speaking in tongues, as it is for the wind to blow upon objects without making a sound. It is now possible to present step number three in its final form. Baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. This summary has examined all three teachings in detail in order to discover the one true way to be saved. This truth was preached by Jesus prior to his crucifixion and practiced by his apostles afterward. That this truth has been and is presently being changed by man to suit his own purposes or through ignorance of the scriptures is abundantly evident in the world of Christianity today. The only answer to be given as a warning to all who practice anything other than that contained in the Holy Bible is best spoken by the Apostle Paul in his writing to the Galatians. Galatians 1.8 But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The Bible Plan of Salvation 1. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance from sins. 2. Water baptism by immersion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 3. Baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterances. And at the conclusion of this reading, I want to dedicate this reading to my father, Don Brumley. I am his son, Arthur Brumley, and it has been my privilege to read and to convey what he wrote many years ago, what we must do to be saved.